Welcome to Speaking in First Draft, a Girls Right Now bi-weekly interview podcast series featuring the current and next generation of storytellers. In this podcast, our community members share a draft of one of their works in progress or completed pieces and discuss both the writing process and what creative expression looks like to them. Speaking in First Draft is hosted by me, Katherine Destin, the editor-in-residence and Mentee alumnae of Girls Right Now. Girls Right Now is a New York City-based nonprofit with over 25 years of history, breaking down the barriers of gender, race, age, and poverty to mentor and train the next generation of writers and leaders for life. In the very first episode of Speaking in First Draft, I, your host Catherine, interviews mentor Martina Clark about the first draft of her memoir and audiobook, My Unexpected Life, an International Memoir of Two Pandemics, HIV and COVID-19. With 4.6 stars on Amazon from over 3,000 reviews, this deeply personal yet humorous piece details Martina's international career in activism as an HIV-positive woman and draws parallels to the COVID-19 pandemic. Listen in to hear Martina and I discuss the emotional labor of memoir writing and activism work, overcoming stigma in public health, and why spaces like Girls Right Now are crucial for representation in storytelling. Hello, everyone. Welcome to one of our first few episodes of Speaking in First Draft, a Girls Right Now podcast. I'm here with the awesome Martina Clark, who is going to share some of her work today. Martina, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. Uh, My name is Martina Clark, and I am a mentor with Girls Right Now. And I also teach uh, at LaGuardia Community College for high school kids doing college classes early. And I have recently uh, published a memoir. Recently is actually a year and a half ago, but the audiobook just came out uh, two weeks ago. So I'm very excited to be here. That is so awesome. Congrats on the audiobook. Thank you. All right, so I'll let you go ahead and read your excerpt from My Unexpected Life, an International Memoir of Two Pandemics, HIV and COVID-19. Wonderful. So the first uh, part that I'm going to read is the original postscript when I finished the manuscript before it got to a publisher who was ready to send it out into the world. So it read as follows. As I finished this draft in March of 2017, I have been living with HIV for 25 years nearly half my life. In that time, I've had the good fortune to work toward making the world a safer place for people like me living with HIV. This work has allowed me to set foot in over 90 countries around the world and do condom demonstrations in more than 50. My health remains strong, and I I have been lucky enough to respond well to the treatment. I still hate taking the pills each day, but I am grateful that I have access to them. Many people do not and that is unforgivable. The work of the mitigation of the pandemic still has a long way to go. Fortunately, science has made greater strides than society, and today in North America and Europe, and increasingly in other regions, fewer babies are being born with HIV because of effective, affordable medical interventions. Since 1993, I have been enrolled in a natural history study of women living with HIV, WISE, or the Women's Interagency HIV Study, and the research done on our cohort has made a significant impact on the work that improves the lives. I would edit that now, but I will keep reading. (laughs) At more than one international AIDS conference, 
I've seen our cohort, cohort referenced in research abstracts, and I feel proud to have been able to contribute to the work in my own way. HIV is no longer considered a death sentence, assuming people have access to healthcare and can start treatment in a timely and sustainable manner. And those treatments are, so far, much more tolerable than what we had before. A future with HIV is not a perfect one, but it is much brighter than it was in 1992, which, for those who haven't read the book yet, was when I was diagnosed. I have continued to do consulting with the United Nations system, and I feel a sense of pride in being able to do so. I have recently returned to the UN for a short contract with DPKO. The United States has a new president-elect whom I cannot bring myself to name. Working with peacekeeping operations feels like a good thing at this particular moment. The cycle continues. I have earned an MFA in creative writing and literature. I have been able to teach literature at the college level, which I loved, and I feel that teaching is where I'd like to shift my professional energies in the future. This manuscript was the final piece in earning my MFA. I now consider myself a writer and a teacher, as much as a public health consultant and HIV specialist. At long last, I met a man who said the magic words I so long to hear, I understand that you have HIV, and that sucks, but I don't care. I choose you. We've been together for years, and while nobody knows what the future will bring, for now it is a wonderful thing. My beautiful Coralie is now the mother of two, and my partner has a grandson, so children continue to be in my life. Challenges come and go, but my life is good, and the one thing I know for sure is that I am not alone. Okay, so that was what was the version in 2017. Now I'm going to read what it ended up being as it was published in 2021. As I finish this memoir about HIV, I am also navigating a parallel journey with COVID-19. With HIV, my life was forever changed. With COVID, the entire world has shifted. There's no going back to normal. A new normal will emerge eventually. As we as a nation and as a global community navigate this crisis, I am reminded of the extenuating factors that surrounded public health in direct correlation to the tragedy of the HIV and AIDS, the issues, injustices, and rights, or lack thereof, of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and non-binary people were brought to light. They'd always been there, but combating the pandemic necessitated facing these issues head on. The LGBTQ community was front and center in the U.S. and beyond in fighting for the rights of those living with HIV. Now, referring to 2020, a new reckoning is upon us. While millions huddled at home, unable to watch sports or go to the movies, we became glued to the news. On May 27th, the world watched a video of a murder recorded on a cell phone that immediately went viral. For nine minutes and 29 seconds, Minnesota police officer Derek Chauvin calmly looked into the camera, hands in his pockets, knee firmly on George Floyd's neck, as his unarmed and helpless victim struggled for breath. When he finally died, the police brutality and racial injustice could no longer be swept under the rug. The pandemic made us a captive audience. We'd seen it for ourselves. Once again, this latest pandemic has caused inordinate death rates in marginalized groups, in Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color, in low-income populations, and among our senior citizens. Health inequities were exposed, 
income disparities became more glaringly obvious than ever before. Social and racial injustice was on full display. And it had, as it had been at the outset of the HIV-AIDS crisis, these issues had always been there. Society at large had simply chosen to ignore them. The massive AIDS activist movement led to positive changes in healthcare systems, accountability of researchers, and inclusion of those most directly impacted in decision-making processes. I am humbled to have had a tiny role. But the work is far from over, and silence is not an option. Until everyone enjoys a living wage, affordable access to quality care, education, and housing, I still have a lot of work to do. Currently, I do much of my activism through teaching our next generation how to amplify their voices through writing, speaking, and action. With this, I close this chapter and end this book. Tomorrow, I will continue fighting for racial and social justice. What will you do? Thank you so okay. much, Martina, for that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first off, what was it like reading both of them back to back? Um, so reading them back to back, it made me realize that um, I had been kind of lazy in the first draft because I feel like the first versions read a little bit more like a blurb than a postscript. And I wasn't taking advantage of that page space to have a call to action for my readers. It was just sort of like, blah, blah, blah. These are the few things I forgot to mention in the actual book. So I'm going to throw <laughs> them in here. Um, and when I read the final version that ended up in the book, obviously, uh, the world had shifted dramatically with COVID and lots of other things. Um, but I feel like I wrote that much more consciously in the sense that I needed to use every single word on every single page to encourage my readers to also do something in the world to make it a better place for everybody. So do you find it important? You, you said call to action. Um, is that something important to you to have in anything or the certain pieces that you write? I think that it is. I, and I think, of course, it depends on the piece. Um, you know, th it depends on the piece. But I think that in almost everything I write, I try to have a call to action or at the very least highlight what um, a person can do to make a difference in the world sort of subtly through the text because I feel like um, there's so much that we all need to be doing and it is my responsibility just as a human in 2023 to show people um, through my words, opportunities for them to do something. Speaking about the piece more in general, what inspired you to write My Unexpected Journey? And how does it feel, you know, five years after, or six years now? Oh my gosh, how long was 2017? <laughs> 2017, oh, yeah, that's, uh, I guess we're going on six years. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, so I wrote, I wrote my My Unexpected Life because um, in 2008, I was really sick, and I realized that if I didn't tell my story, nobody would. Mm. Obviously, I got better. Well, not obviously, but I did get better. <laughs> and um, But I, I realized that even like if, for nobody else, and my nieces and nephews, my nibblings, I wanted to make sure that they knew 
what Aunt Martina had done all those years as an activist on HIV and AIDS. Um, but I felt really compelled that our stories matter. And again, it's my story. Nobody else can tell it the way that I can. And I think it's important to document it for the history of the AIDS pandemic, because I have, I own a little tiny piece of the response, um, to show that we can overcome things in the worst scenario imaginable, because when I was diagnosed, we didn't yet have treatment for HIV. It's 31 years ago. Um, and that even the smallest things that we think maybe don't matter really do matter. And so documenting some of those little things throughout the book that, you know, they're, they're not going to win anybody a Nobel Peace Prize, but they still help put a little bit of good back into the world. Uh, I think that sharing those stories are, it, it's really, really important that we share our stories. I couldn't agree more. And so you saying that makes me think we probably have similar uh, mindsets that storytelling is a version of activism. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What did the writing process look like for you when you were writing the first version and then the published version? Um, the first version was essentially it was my MFA thesis. And I had pieced together a lot of chapters that I had already written before I even started the MFA. And then I added more in. In the end, um, my sisters and my nibblings, my nieces, were my thesis advisors unofficially <laughs> because I spent a summer where I would write and I would send them chapters and then every Sunday we would get on Zoom and talk about it together. Or back then it was Skype, but then <laughs> pre-pandemic. Anyway, we would get together and we would chat about it and they were excellent readers. I, I sort of worried that they would say, oh, we love it because we love you and you know, they wouldn't be critical, but they were really great readers. And that was what I submitted as my thesis. I then had a friend um, clean it up uh, and started submitting it. And finally, by the time it got to a publisher, they said, we love this manuscript um, and we're going to do one more round of edits with you. And that was actually fantastic because the editor didn't know me as a person and she didn't know any of my backstory. So she only knew what was in the book. And so she was able to read it and say, um, this part doesn't make sense because I need a little bit more information. Uh, this part you've already repeated three times. We can cut two of them. Um, this doesn't flow quite right. You know, things like this, or maybe let's move this a little bit here or there, things like that. And to be honest, pretty much all of her edits were excellent. And I did not fight with her <laughs> on anything. I was like, yeah, she's right. And that's why editors are so important. Um, and then there was one more person who did the final, final edits just to make sure that it flowed to yet another person who hadn't read the final draft. And, um, and that was the process. And I think it is a much better book than it was originally. And it needed a professional editor to sort of say, this is how it's going to hold together. Here's the glue you need to apply and in which spots. Um, and then because of the world going through COVID, which I wouldn't wish on us ever again, it did offer me the opportunity to bookend the manuscript with the COVID pandemic and draw parallels throughout between COVID and HIV. 
So I did that. And I think that um, in terms of the nonfiction sort of researched part of it, it is also a much stronger book than it started out because I went back and I did my homework and like, okay, exactly when did this thing happen and where was that conference and so on and so forth. So I brought in a lot more details. Um, yeah. And I think it's, uh, you know, I could probably still have done more editing, but it's like any piece of art at some point, you just have to stop. <laughs> I couldn't agree. You have to put that pen exactly. down or else you never will. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you name dropped Skype. It's been so long since I've heard that. <laughs> I still wonder, like, how did, when the pandemic hit, how did we not all go to Skype? I never heard of Zoom. I until... know. Skype had one job and they've been planning for 20 exactly. years. <laughs> <laughs> um, something you shared uh, stuck out to me when you said you were researching the COVID-19 pandemic as well, mm-hmm. um, as you were updating your manuscript. Could you speak more to maybe any parallels or big contrasts you see between maybe the narrative around HIV when you were diagnosed and the narrative we see around COVID now? Sure. So one thing, just um, scientifically, the fact that we got to having vaccines as quickly as you did is in large part because of all of the years, decades of research done to try and create a vaccine for HIV. We still don't have a vaccine for HIV, but because of all of the trial and error that we did then... They were able to apply that science for COVID, and it worked. So that's a a direct link. Another thing that I noticed, um, and I actually had COVID early on because I'm an early adopter, and I, you know, got to be on top of all the trends. Apparently, (laughs) I'm a virus overachiever. (laughs) But um, (laughs) but the main difference um, for me was that when I got HIV, there was a huge amount of stigma. My family didn't want to talk about it. It was sort of um, a shame attached to it. And how could this happen to you? And, and I thought all of these thoughts myself as well, but, but I felt it from the outside world also. Whereas with COVID, it was sort of like, oh no, this is terrible. And it's just bad luck. And I was sort mm-hmm. of in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was no judgment on me that I could feel from anybody, you know, I felt I had sort of done all the things I was supposed to do, but we didn't know. It was March, 2020, and um, everybody was getting it. I live in New York City, and, you know, we're the hardest hit in the country. Um, But I didn't feel any of that sort of of social judgment or stigma attached to the pandemic. And even, you know, in these three years that have followed, I still have not seen that emerge. There's certainly a lot of judgment around how it was dealt with and people's responses to vaccines and so on and so forth, but it's not so much on an individual level that you're a bad person because you got COVID. It just, that sucks. And at this point, almost everybody has had COVID. So that also is a huge difference. Um, And then another thing that I will throw in is that uh, during COVID, in San Francisco, for example, the funding that went to AIDS and HIV, a lot of it dried up and was redistributed towards COVID response, which in an you know emergency response makes sense, kind of, but it resulted in people with HIV becoming unhoused because their housing was no longer funded. It resulted in new infections because there weren't outreach programs to support people who were at risk. Um, to lower vulnerabilities. A lot of that happened, and that was um, 
also bad management of public public health funds, basically. I, I don't have a good answer for that one, but that was that certainly is a big issue. No, that definitely could be a whole other conversation about how public health and the perception of it and how it's changed over just the last three years. And I wonder, you know, when HIV first became something noticeable and something people couldn't ignore anymore, um, how did public health sort of shift or how did people start thinking about themselves and how they could serve their communities? And it makes me think, I think COVID with just with it being airborne and how common it is to receive it now or to get it. You spoke about stigma when you mentioned how um, because everyone has had it, it seems like we've been able to avoid people being perceived as a bad person because they got it. What is worth noting is that with the HIV pandemic, you had a huge number of activists, particularly early on, who insisted that they needed a seat at the table. They needed to be a part of the decision-making process. And, um, and in part, that was because early on in the 80s and early 90s, uh, we didn't think we were going to live, right? We all, these people with HIV are like, all right, you have HIV and maybe a couple of years to live. Why not be an activist? What have we got to lose? Um, and that, I have seen that with other diseases, um, that has shifted forever the way that public health responds, because there is no longer going to be a situation where people impacted by the disease are not going to have a voice. We have to still keep fighting for it because uh, people forget, you know, people retire, do people come on board, people have different back experiences and so on and so forth. But um, the involvement of people living with HIV dramatically shifted the way that public health responded to the pandemic. And I think it has set up the way that um, already, even in the first months of COVID, I saw sort of um, patient advocacy groups forming on Facebook or whatever. You know, there was there were things, there was research, people demanding that research happen and people demanding that different research happen. And stop doing that, do this instead. You know, there's been a voice of people maybe not heard as much as they would like to be, I can imagine. Um, but it has, I think that the work on HIV made that possible for other things that happened in the, you know, in its wake, if you will. Yeah, I think that's noticeable too. And I'm really happy to see that, you know, this time around, it seems like we're getting better at addressing things like COVID and viruses. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned stigma earlier, and I think that's something that always tends to come up when we're talking, when people are talking about HIV. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you, how big of a role do you think stigma has on someone's diagnosis or treatment or living with an illness in general? Oh, I think it has a huge role. And I think that um, one thing to keep in mind is often it's, it's sort of a self-stigma, if you will, which is totally, totally, totally normal. But, you know, up until the point that we are diagnosed, we have imagined all of these things. And then when the diagnosis happens, it's very common, I think, for people to apply those things to themselves, even if they're not true. Because you imagine like, oh, this is what I thought about all those other people with that thing. Now it's me. I must be all of those things. And you sort of have to go through and process that. Um, so I think step number one is to realize that you are exactly the same person you were the day before you got the diagnosis. You just now have this other thing to contend with. Um, but I also think that 
uh, people around you shift their perception of you. And I saw that a lot in my work. I used to work with the United Nations system, and I would go and do trainings on HIV. And I would start out as the specialist from whichever country office coming to do a training. And the minute I disclosed my own status, everything changed. I became that person with AIDS in the room. And some people would sort of, you know, you would see them physically shift their body posture. Some people would just sort of start to ask me really personal probing questions that were totally inappropriate. Um, mm -hmm. And I could see that all of those stigma influences, if you will, sort of came into the room in a very different way than they had even just two minutes before I had said something. And I think that science has done extraordinary work in um, creating, uh, you know, medications that are available for people with HIV now, you know, huge, huge difference than when the treatments first became available and so on and so forth. Stigma and society has not caught up. We're still dealing with that. And I still feel that even in 2023, that the minute I disclose to somebody, it's not a sort of palpable, visceral reaction, maybe the same way, but there is definitely like, a, oh, I didn't know that. And I can sort of see all of the information getting restacked in their mind. Yeah, it's funny that when people say, I didn't know that, you think, well, how would you? I didn't, yeah. <laughs> wouldn't have told you until. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as we begin to wrap up, I, I have a few more questions. And so as a woman with HIV and then having COVID uh, in March 2020, do you think there's a gap in between what stories are shared, especially when it comes to HIV or any gap in social consciousness about what HIV looks like? I do. And I think that um, my memoir, and this is not like to promote my memoir, but one no, thing... No, do that, do that. <laughs> <laughs> one woman, for example, Sarah Shulman, who's a, a very well-known activist and writes a lot about HIV, she wrote a little blurb about, not a blurb, but a review, and said that mine was um, a needed addition to the canon of books on HIV because women's stories are almost not told around HIV. There are very few memoirs of women living with HIV compared to the many, many, many memoirs of men living with HIV and people who have been caregivers of people living with HIV. Despite the fact that globally, more than half of the cases of HIV are women. And I think most people don't know that. And so the perception, you know, what is represented in our stories and in the books that are available to read does not match up with the actual numbers. And so I think that our stories are really important. Um, it's also important to tell the stories of people who are now aging with HIV, because this is a whole new phenomenon, that there's a whole bunch of us who are still alive and never thought we would be 20, 30, 40 years later. And that is a whole different um, world that we're navigating. And then I think with the people with, um, with COVID, I think the stories are also really important because there's a, there's a whole branch of medicine that also is, I think, called narrative medicine, where telling the stories of people living with a certain illness helps the medical community understand what's going on. So it's not just telling your doctor, you know, I, I needed to take two aspirin because I had a headache on Thursday, but telling the ongoing sort of, this is what my life is like living with this thing and how it has changed me helps them to fill in the gaps 
So just on a very practical level, it's really important that we tell our stories. I couldn't agree more. Um, and then what does it mean to tell these stories and create in the community like girls right now as a mentor? Um, I, so I have been sort of a volunteer in and around girls right now for a while and then became a full a mentor this past fall. Um, I haven't really told my story. This is my first venture out. Um, <laughs> But I think that it is important, again, because Girls Right Now represents so many different people from different walks of life, that all of us as writers, whether we're the mentor or the mentee, um, it's, it's just another avenue to share who we are, how we got to this place of being a part of Girls Right Now, and why um, such a rich variety of stories makes girls right now such an extraordinary community and I sort of you know I, I attend the events online and I wish that there was a way to just hang out with everybody for like an entire weekend you know <laughs> I don't it's like I don't <laughs> want just two hours I want I want like a retreat you know because there's so many fascinating people and I know we all have stories to tell and um yeah I, I think it would be wonderful to have sort of a a a little library or bibliography of everybody's uh, published work or how to find that really easily, which of course is a monumental undertaking because Girls Right Now reaches so many people. But um, I would love to know more of the stories of the other people involved. Yeah. 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 I'm so excited to see what we see at the end of this cohort um, yeah. and what people will publish. Yes, absolutely. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share? Um, I will just do a little, you know, shameless self-promotion to say that, again, my my, unexpe my unexpected life, an international memoir of two pandemics, HIV and COVID-19, is available um, anywhere books are sold, but it is also now an audiobook. And I narrated it myself, and um, it has got given me a lot of feels about AI. I think that people should still narrate their own books if they can. <laughs> And I agree. also just narrating it made me think a lot about the manuscript, which reminds me of the tried and true recommendation to always read your work out loud, because how it sounds to the reader is not necessarily how it sounds in your head. Uh, and having read my entire manuscript out loud <laughs> into a microphone, um, I think there are still a few more things that I would have changed, and I will be a different writer the next time out. Awesome. I couldn't agree more. I still suck at reading out loud, but I know it's a must. You feel so in outside of yourself. You're like, who wrote this? Yeah, it feels really weird, but it's an excellent tool. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Well, thank you again, Martina, for taking this time out to discuss your piece and your journey. Um, it's really great hearing your story and for us to be able to share it in any way we can. Uh, thank you again to all of our listeners for one of these first few episodes of Speaking in First Draft, and have an amazing day. Thank you so much. Thank you to Martina for sharing her work her thoughts, and her conversation with us. And thank you, 
our listeners, for joining us in this episode of Speaking in First Draft. Check back bi-weekly on Wednesdays for a new episode, and make sure you subscribe to Speaking in First Draft wherever you get your podcasts. Much like the drafts in these episodes, we're just starting out and greatly appreciate any feedback you have. Leave us a review wherever you listen to this episode and tell your friends. This episode is a production of Girls Right Now. It was produced, edited, recorded, and hosted by me, Catherine Destin. See you next time, and happy writing.